0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. All right, so let me tell you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print-impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, let's go into this one. Uh, first from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for... Sunday, May 21, 2023, Zelensky goes to Japan to bolster support from G7 by Foster Klug, Adam Shrek, and Josh Boak. Hiroshima, Japan. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky arrived Saturday in Japan for talks with the leaders of the world's most powerful democracies, a personal appearance meant to galvanize global attention as the nation's ratcheted up pressure on Moscow for its 15-month invasion of Ukraine. Bolstering international support is a key priority as Ukraine prepares for what's seen as a major push to take back territory seized by Russia in the war that began in February last year. Zelensky's in-person visit to the Group of Seven summit comes just hours after the United States agreed to allow training on potent American-made fighter jets Laying the groundwork for their eventual transfer to Ukraine. Host Nation Japan said Zelensky's inclusion stems from the strong wish to participate in talks with the Bloc and other countries that will influence his nation's defense against Russia. Japan, G7, important meetings with partners and friends of Ukraine. Security and enhanced cooperation for our victory. Peace will become a closer today, Zelensky tweeted upon his arrival. On a plane provided by france a european union official speaking on condition of anonymity to brief reporters on the deliberations said Zelensky will take part in two separate sessions sunday one session will be with g7 members only and will focus on the war in ukraine another will include the g7 as well as the other nations invited to take part in the summit and will focus on peace and stability U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that President Biden and Zelensky would have direct engagement at the summit. On Friday, Biden announced his support for training Ukrainian pilots on U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets, a precursor to eventually providing those aircraft to Ukraine. It is necessary to improve Ukraine's air defense capabilities, including the training of our pilots, Zelensky wrote on his official Telegram channel after meeting Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, one of a number of leaders he talked to. Zelensky also met with Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, their first face-to-face talk since the war and briefed him on Ukraine's peace plan, which calls for the withdrawal of Russian troops from the country before any negotiations. Alexander Grushko, a high-ranking Russian minister, accused Western countries of continuing along the path of escalation following the announcements that raised the possibility of sending f-16s to kiev the g7 vowed to intensify the pressure in its joint statement on saturday russia's brutal war of aggression represents a threat to the world to the whole world in breach of fundamental norms rules and principles of the international community will reaffirm our unwavering support for ukraine For as long as it takes to bring a comprehensive, just, and lasting peace, the group said. G7 leaders have faced a balancing act as they look to address a raft of global worries demanding urgent attention, including climate change, artificial intelligence, poverty and economic instability, nuclear proliferation, and above all, the war in Ukraine. China, the world's number two economy, sits at the nexus of many of those concerns. There is increasing anxiety that Beijing, which has been steadily building up its nuclear weapons program, could try to seize Taiwan by force, sparkling a wider conflict. China claims the self-governing island as its own and regularly sends ships and warplanes near it. The G7 on Saturday said it did not want to harm China and was seeking constructive and stable relations with Beijing, recognizing the importance of engaging candidly with an expressing candidly and with and expressing our concerns directly to China. It also urged China to pressure Russia to end the war in Ukraine and support a comprehensive, just and lasting peace. North Korea, which has been testing missiles at a torrid place, must completely abandon its nuclear bomb ambitions, including any further nuclear tests or launches that use ballistic missile technology, the leader's statement said. The Green Island on F-16 training is the latest shift by the Biden administration as it moves to arm Ukraine with more advanced and lethal weaponry following earlier decisions to send rocket launcher systems and and Abrams tanks. The United States uh, has insisted that it is sending weapons to Ukraine to defend itself and has encouraged attacks by Ukraine into Russian territory. We're reaching a moment where it is time to look down the road again to say what is Ukraine going to need as part of a future force to be able to deter and defend against Russian aggression as we go forward, Sullivan said. The decisions on the number of fourth generation F-16 fighter jets as well as who will provide them and when will be made in the months ahead while training is underway, Biden told leaders. The G-7 leaders, have rolled out a new wave of global sanctions on Moscow as well as plans to enhance the effectiveness of existing financial penalties meant to constrain President Vladimir Putin's war effort. Russia is now the most sanctioned country in the world, but there are questions about the effectiveness. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida separately held one-on-one talks with leaders including Modi, who was hosting the group of 20 gathering this year india the world's largest democracy has been measured in its comments on the war in ukraine and has avoided outright condemnation of russia's invasion while india maintains close ties with the us and its western allies it is also a major buyer of russian arms and oil the leaders began the summer with a visit to the peace park dedicated to the tens of thousands who died in the world's first wartime atomic bomb detonation kushida who represents Hiroshima in Parliament, wants nuclear disarmament to be a major focus of discussion. The G7 leaders also discussed efforts to strengthen the global economy and address rising prices that are squeezing families and government budgets around the world. The G7 includes Japan, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Canada, and Italy, as well as the European Union. That was Zelensky Goes to Japan to Bolster Support from G7 by Foster Klug, Adam Schreck, and Josh Boak from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, May 21, 2023. Klug, Schreck, and Boak write for the Associated Press. AP writers Zeke Miller, Elaine Kurtenbach, and Mara Yamaguchi in Hiroshima and Joanna Koslowska in London contributed to this report. All right, here is another Zelensky article from the uh, perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, May 27th, 2023. Zelensky gives surprise video speech to U.S. university grads from the Associated Press. Baltimore. During a surprise commencement address to graduates of Johns Hopkins University, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky told them to take advantage of their time and resources to pursue their passions and uphold the democratic values at stake in his country's war against Russia. He spoke Thursday via livestream from Ukraine, where the ongoing conflict has negatively affected the futures of countless young Ukrainians, robbing them of opportunities and loved ones, Zelensky said. He told Hopkins graduates to make the most of every moment. Time is the most valuable resource on the planet, he said. Some people realize this sooner, and these are the lucky ones. Others realize it too late, when they lose something or someone he also thanked u.s leaders for their support since the russian invasion including significant investments in humanitarian and military aid president biden announced last week an an agreement between the u.s and european nations to supply ukraine with uh with f-16 fighter jets fulfilling a long-standing request from ukrainian leaders Zelensky spent months pressing the West to provide his forces with American-made jets as his troops continued trying to repel Russian forces with the conflict now in its second year. During his remarks Thursday, Zelensky described a recent visit with Ukrainian troops on the front lines, saying many soldiers have dreams and aspirations similar to those of the American graduating students. The difference is that young Ukrainians are forced to endure the collective tragedy of war before chasing their dreams, he said. You have to know exactly what you need today and what you want your tomorrows to look like, Zelensky said. The commencement ceremony took place at Homewood Homewood Field on the university's Baltimore campus. The university announced Zelensky's address with the ceremony already underway, just minutes before his remarks were said to begin. His appearance will be a complete surprise for those in attendance, a news release said. Zelensky, whose response to the Russian invasion has made him an international symbol of democracy, said he's confident that future generations of American leaders will continue championing democratic values around the world. University President Ronald Daniels awarded Zelensky an honorary Doctor of Humane Letters degree after his speech daniels had sent a letter to Zelensky asking him to speak at the ceremony according to university spokesperson jill rosen in the letter daniels expressed his hope that one of our era's great democratic leaders would speak to the next generation of leaders reinforcing in them the importance of holding fast to one's principles and meeting with fortitude and humility uh, the challenging moments of the of history that they will surely face in the years ahead. That was Zelensky gives surprise video speech to U.S. University grads from the Associated Press out of the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times Saturday, May 27, 2023. All right, and now we go here to the U.S. and This is from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, May 27, 2023. Debt ceiling deadline moved to June 5th, Yellen says. By Lisa Mascara... Seung min kim and kevin freking washington treasury secretary janet l yellen said friday that the projected debt ceiling deadline was extended to june 5th four days later than previously estimated but in a letter she uh, renewed her warning to congress that failing to raise the uh, to raise the borrowing limit would cause severe hardship yellen's latest letter to lawmakers on the x-date came as Congress broke for the long Memorial Day weekend. She said the Treasury Department had deployed an extraordinary measure not used since 2015 to get the nation's finances to this point. The ex-date is when the government no longer has the financial cushion to pay all of its bills, having exhausted the measures it's been using since uh, January to stretch existing funds. Earlier Friday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield, said Republican debt negotiators and the White House had hit crunch time and were straining to wrap up a deal with President Biden to curb federal spending and lift the nation's borrowing limit before the deadline. The parties had hoped to strike a deal by this weekend to end weeks of talks. If government money starts running out a week from Monday, it could send the U.S. into a catastrophic default with global repercussions. Anxious retirees, social service groups, and others were making default contingency plans as lawmakers left town for the holiday weekend. The next batch of social security checks are due to go out next week. The world is watching, said International Monetary Fund managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, after meeting with Yellen on Friday. Let's remember, we are now at the 12th hour. The Democratic president and the Republican speaker were narrowing differences, trying to lock in uh, details on a two-year deal to restrain spending and lift the borrowing limit until after the presidential election. Any deal would need to be a compromise with support from Democrats and Republicans to pass the, uh, the, pass the divided Congress. We know it's crunched, said uh, McCarthy, as he arrived at the emptied-out Capitol, acknowledging more progress needed to be made. At the White House, Biden said one of his top negotiators, Office of of Management and Budget Director Shalanda Young, was putting together a deal, hopefully. An agreement has been taking shape to cut spending for the 2024 and impose a 1% cap on spending growth for 2025. But the two sides remain stuck on some provisions. The debt ceiling now, $31 trillion, would be lifted for two years to pay the nation's incurrent bills. A person familiar with the talks said the two sides were dug in on whether to agree to GOP demands to impose stiffer work requirements on people who receive food stamps and cash in health care instances. House Democrats say such requirements for food and health care are a non-starter. Asked whether Republicans would uh, relent on work requirements, Representative Garrett Graves of Louisiana, a top GOP negotiator, fumed hell no not a chance house republicans have pushed the issue to the brink showing risky bravado and leaving town for the holiday lawmakers are not expected back at work until tuesday biden will also be away he was to depart friday uh, for the presidential retreat at camp david maryland and to head to his home in wilmington delaware on sunday the senate is also on recess until after memorial day each time there is a forward progress, the issues that remain become more difficult and more challenging, said one negotiator, Representative Patrick McHenry, Republican of North Carolina, at midday Friday. The Biden administration initially resisted negotiating in response to GOP threats on a debt, the debt limit, arguing that the country's full faith and credit should not be used as leverage to extract partisan priorities. We have to spend less than we spent last year. That is the starting point, McCarthy said. One idea is to set the top line budget numbers, but then add a snap back provision to enforce cuts if Congress is unable in its annual appropriations process to meet the new goal. On work requirements for aid recipients, the White House is resisting measures that could drive more people into poverty or take their health care, said the person familiar with the talks who was granted anonymity to describe closed door talks. On a gop demand to rescind money for the internal revenue service it's not clear whether the sides will compromise on letting the funds be pushed into other programs the person said in one potential development republicans may be easing their demand to boost uh, defense spending beyond what biden had proposed according to another person familiar with the talks the teams are also eyeing a proposal to boost energy transmission line development to facilitate the bulldog of an inter an interregional power grid, McCarthy is freeing pressure is feeling pressure from the House's right flank, not to give in to any deal, even if it means blowing past the deadline. Let's hope. The, let's hold the line," said Representative Chip Roy, Republican of Texas, a Freedom Caucus member. McCarthy said former President Trump, who was again running for office, told him, "Make sure you get a good agreement." Democrats are also pressing Biden. The top three House Democratic leaders, led by Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York, spoke late Thursday with the White House. If negotiations strike a, a deal soon, if negotiations strike a deal soon, McCarthy has promised to abide by the rule to post any bill for 72 hours before a vote. The Democratic-led Senate has vowed to move quickly to send the package to Biden's desk. Meanwhile. Fitch Ratings, uh, uh, Fitch Ratings agency, placed the nation's AAA credit on ratings watch negative, warning of a possible downgrade. The White House uh, has continued to argue that de- deficits can be reduced by ending tax breaks for the wealthy and some corporations. But McCarthy has said tax hikes are off the table, while Biden has ruled out. For now, invoking the 14th Amendment to raise the debt limit on its own, House Democrats announced they had all signed on to to a process that would force a debt ceiling vote. But they need five Republicans to set the plan forward. They are all but certain to claw back some $30 billion in unspent COVID-19 funds. That was debt ceiling deadline moved to June 5th, Yellen says, by Lisa Mascaro, Seung Min Kim, and Kevin Freaking. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, May 27, 2023. Mascaro, Kim, and Frecking write for the Associated Press. AP writers Mary Claire Jalonik, Stephen Groves, Fatima Hussein, uh, Farnaj Amiri, and video journalist Rick Gentilo contributed to this report. Okay, and now back home a couple of articles regarding our senior senator Dianne Feinstein. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, May 21, 2023, Feinstein isn't one to quit, ever. Pressure to retire from Senate is nothing after all she's endured, says expert biographer by Mark Z. Barabak. Other than family and close friends, few people have a longer history with Diane Feinstein or a better understanding of California's ailing U.S. Senator than Jerry Roberts. The former political writer and newspaper editor, now host of Santa Barbara's singular broadcast, Newsmakers with Jerry Roberts, first covered Feinstein nearly 50 years ago. She was on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Roberts was a reporter for the city's alternative paper, The Bay Guardian. In 1994, he published the biography, Diane Feinstein Never Let Them See You Cry. It remains a must read for students of the 89 year old lawmaker who faces uh, intense pressure to quit amid doubts about her mental and physical health and capacity to do her job in the Senate. Our conversation about Feinstein past and present has been edited for length and clarity. Question. Start with a few words to, to describe the senator. Answer. Tough, independent, persistent, courageous, driven. Question. She's had a remarkable career, but her life hasn't always been easy or happy starting with an awful childhood. Answer. Answer. Her father was a very prominent surgeon at UC San Francisco. They were well-off and outwardly sort of this perfect family. But her mother was abusive, both emotionally and physically. She was an alcoholic. She used prescription drugs. And Diane, as the oldest, was kind of put in the role of protecting her two younger sisters. There were a lot of incidents that her sisters described to me, one of which involved her mother trying to drown the youngest one in the bathtub when she was about five years old. Within the walls of the house, there was a lot of trouble, but it was a no secret. But it was a secret no one was ever supposed to hear about. Question: Feinstein's first marriage at a young age ended in divorce. Her second left her a widow in her 40s. Answer: Her second marriage was to a widely regarded surgeon, Bert Feinstein, whose name she has kept her whole life. That was a very happy marriage, but he died of colon cancer in 1978. He was really, I think, the singular love of her life, so that was difficult for her. Question. That same year, Feinstein was ready to quit politics after two unsuccessful runs for mayor. Then she was thrust into the job as board president when Mayor George Moscone was assassinated. How do you think all the drama and tragedy shaped Feinstein? Answer. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I think it certainly steel uh, as well as gave her a kind of armor. That was the reason I called the book, Never Let Them See You Cry. It was an act, it was actually a suggestion she made in a piece written for a women's magazine about how to succeed in the workplace. She's always put on a very brave, professional, and very polished public image, even when she was experiencing a lot of anguish and private pain. Question. How do you think that background informs this particular mo- uh, moment? Answer. Independence is probably Feinstein's most salient character trait, but also a belief in herself to the point of stubbornness where nobody is going to tell her what she can or cannot do. She has tremendous belief and confidence in her own strength and her own ability. And in fact, the best way to get her to do something is to tell her that she can't. That really goes back to her first election to the Board of Supervisors in 1969 where everyone told her, including her father whom she idolized, a woman can't win. I think that just really made her dig in to prove people wrong. She was never what you would call a movement feminist, but she was a feminist in that she always wanted an equal opportunity to do stuff, and she wanted equal treatment. Question: Do you think this pressure will make Feinstein even more resistant to quitting? Answer: She's always been an independent political force. She's never been a party regular, go-along person. So to have people say, well, the Democratic Party wants her to do this, it's silly. I mean, it doesn't matter what the Democratic Party wants or doesn't want in terms of what Diane has decided she's going to do. Question. Is there anyone in this world who could push her out or who would even try? Answer. Not that I know of. I think another thing that's contributing to this whole situation that doesn't get mentioned much is the death of Richard Bloom. Question, he and Feinstein married in 1980, and he passed away in February 19 of 2022. Answer, it was not an easy time. He was sick for a long time. She was fly, fly, flying back and forth across the country to be with him. She listened to his advice, both politically and personally. They were very much a team. But beyond that, I don't see anyone else that I'm aware of whose counsel she would seek on this. She's 89 years old. She's gone to a lot of funerals. A lot of advisors, a lot of counselors, a lot of allies aren't around anymore. Question. You spoke of Feinstein as a feminist. Do you believe sexism is behind efforts to push her aside? Answer. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has certainly made, it that, made that point, and I find it hard to disagree with. Massachusetts Senator Edward M. Kennedy was absent for months after being diagnosed with brain cancer and I don't recall anyone saying, oh, Ted Kennedy should resign. And there's a lot of other examples as well. So I think there's an element of that. I think there's also an ideological element. The left wing of the Democratic Party tried to get rid of Feinstein in 2018 when she ran for reelection and they endorsed Kevin DeLeon. So when you see people like Representatives Ro Khanna and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez stepping out there and calling for her to resign, that's part of it. Question: Will the sad ending tarnish Feinstein's legacy? Should it? Answer: I don't think it should. Look at all the things she accomplished politically as well as culturally. Look at the generations of women politicians that have come out of the Bay Area: the Vice President of the United States, the former Speaker of the House, Senator Barbara Boxer, women of Congress. They all followed Diane's footsteps. Her work in the Senate, Desert, uh, desert Protection exposing the government use of torture to fight terrorism, the 10-year assault weapons ban speaks for itself. The role she played on comp- uh, she played on complicated uh, California issues, water uh, immigration, many things. There's a recency bias to this. People are seeing what's happening today, and a lot of times they don't really know everything she's accomplished. It will be a couple of lines in her obituary, but that's it. Question. Pelosi's eldest daughter, Nancy Corinne Prouda, has been a constant at Feinstein's side. Some see politics at work since Pelosi is backing Representative Adam B. Schiff to succeed Feinstein, but you don't buy it. Answer. Start with the fact that uh, Pelosi and Feinstein lived across the street from each other for 30 years. Nancy and Diane have a personal relationship that predates their political relationship. Diane knows all her kids. It was the two of them that really brought the Democratic National Convention to San Francisco in 1984. When Representative Sala Burton died in 1987, Diane briefly thought about running for Congress, but deferred uh, when Nancy decided to run. Question. If Feinstein were to quit, the speculation that Governor Gavin Newsom would appoint Representative Barbara Lee, a shift rival, as her successor, giving Lee an advantage in the 2024 election for the Senate seat. Answer. I don't see any politics. It's trying to be too clever by half connecting the dots. The idea is all a plot to elect Adam Schiff seems the silliest kind of speculation. And a question. Agreed. And that was Feinstein Isn't One to Quit Ever by Mark Z. Barabak from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, May 21st, 2023. All right, here is one more from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, May 25th, 2023. Feinstein unfit for office voters say in a survey, Senator's popularity plunges during illness. Just over one-fourth view her favorably by Benjamin Oreskes. Washington. A substantial majority of Californians feel that Senator Dianne Feinstein is no longer fit for the job because of her recent uh, declining health and more voters believe she should resign than support her to stay in office, according to a new UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies poll co-sponsored by the LA Times. Feinstein, 89, returned to Washington, D.C. in early May after months away recovering from shingles. Her absence caused heartache among fellow Democrats who hold a slim majority in the Senate, making tasks such as confirming judges harder. The state's senior senator, has already said she will not seek re-election in 2024 when her term ends. The race to expect her is a close contest with support for two Democrats, Representative Katie Porter of Irvine and Adam B. Schiff of Burbank, and one Republican, Eric Early, bunched tightly together among likely voters. A third Democrat, Representative Barbara Lee of Oakland, lags behind. Feinstein's latest illness, which was more serious than her office initially revealed, has clearly taken a toll on her standing with voters. According to the survey, nearly two-thirds of registered voters said her illness shows she is no longer fit to serve. That sentiment spans the ideological spectrum, including two out of three Democratic voters. Just 20% of voters disagreed her image with voters has also worsened her favorability rating has dropped nearly 20 percentage points since she won a fifth term in 2018 with just 29 percent now holding a positive view of Feinstein much of her decline in popularity came in the last three months with favorable views dropping eight points since voters were last surveyed in February just over half of voters 52% now have an unfavorable view of Feinstein, and 19% have no opinion. Democrats in particular have grown more negative. Her constituents are financially weighing in, are finally weighing in, said Mark DiCamillo, director of the Institute of Governmental Studies poll and a longtime California pollster. Republicans haven't changed their view of Feinstein over that period. It's really her own party members. It's erosion of support of Feinstein, particularly among the liberal wing, but it's much broader now with her health issues. In February, Feinstein was hospitalized for a week with shingles. The illness kept her in San Francisco for months. The dozens of votes she missed, including several on judges, led some in her own party, including Representative Ro Khanna of Fremont, to call her to step aside. Feinstein was defiant. At one point, she asked for a temporary replacement to be appointed to the Judicial judicial Committee, which Republicans blocked. Two weeks ago, the former San Francisco mayor returned to the Capitol to the great relief of Democratic leaders. Shortly after returning, Feinstein spoke with two reporters, including one from the Times, and appeared to not recall that she had been absent from Congress for months due to her illness. I haven't gone, she said, I've been working. While recuperating in San Francisco, Feinstein also had a case of encephalitis, a disclosed just last week, a complication from shingles that can be de- debilitating, causing memory loss and other effects. Despite a return, a majority of California's Democratic voters, 52%, said Feinstein should resign, which would allow Governor Gavin Newsom to appoint a replacement. Just 24% of her, of her fellow Democrats said she should sh- serve out her term with another 24% undecided, according to the poll. Republicans, however, opposed the idea of Newsom appointing a senator. They split on what Feinstein should do, with 44% saying they were undecided. Overall, 42% of voters said the senator should step down, with 27% saying she should finish her term and 31% unsure, the survey found. Prominent Democrats, including Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer of New York, said they were glad to have Feinstein back in Washington, adding that she should decide if she is healthy enough to remain in office. In recent years, several elderly senators in poor health faced calls to resign but ignored them. Before she returned, some prominent Democrats, including former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a longtime San Francisco ally of the senators, said the calls for Feinstein to step down amounted to sexism. I've never seen them after a man who was sick in the Senate in that way, Pelosi said. California voters don't buy that argument. However, with 58% uh, 58 disagreeing, that calls for Feinstein to resign were rooted in sexism. About half of voters were also not swayed by the view that losing Feinstein's seniority in the Senate if she were to resign would be a major loss for the state. Anna Barr, a California-based Democratic political consultant who previously worked for Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, said extensive coverage of Feinstein's frail state has given voters a clear picture of her capacity to serve. Even if that coverage has not been proportionate with male colleagues who were sick but in office, Barr said, the holes in her memory are very concerning. I think we've seen enough evidence to know that the people of California are not being represented or served by their senior senator. Older men may have uh, gotten by, but at the end of the day, she's not well. Anybody can see she's not well. Her health is poor, Barr said. In the race to replace Feinstein, many voters haven't made a choice. The UC Berkeley poll on the Senate race includes Republican voters because there is now a Republican candidate. Among voters likely to take part in the primary, Early has support from 18%, nearly all Republicans. Porter is close behind with 17 percent, followed by Ship with 14 and Lee at 9 percent. Roughly 4 in 10 likely voters are undecided or plan to vote for someone else. DiCamillo said Early's lead, which is well within the poll's margin of error of three percentage points in either direction for the likely voter sample, is mostly a byproduct of his Republican affiliation. It could have been John Smith. You put the Republican tag next to the name, and they're going to win the support uh, the support of Republicans, Di Camillo said. It just opens up the dynamics of the race to one. Uh, we are really thinking about the possibility of a Democrat versus a Republican in the general. Or will top two, uh, two Democrats rise to the top, he said. Although the 2016 and 2018 Senate elections featured two Democrats facing off in the general election, the possibility doesn't exist that it could be a Democrat versus Republican, and whoever that Democrat is, I'm sure they're rooting for that outcome because the election is pretty much over if that happens, DiCamillo said. Democrats have an overwhelming voter registration edge in the state. Er early is a Los Angeles resident and loyalist to former President Trump. He ran unsuccessfully for Congress in 2020 and has embraced new restrictions on abortion and has called for outlawing critical race theory in California schools. Early was by far the least known candidate, with 71% of likely voters saying they had no opinion of him. Schiff was the best known, but also the most polarizing. Among all likely voters, 36% had a favorable view of him and 32% had a negative view. Another 32% had no opinion. Porter, who represents a swing Orange County district and has recently been promoting a new book, is viewed favorably by 35% of likely voters. 20% view her unfavorably and 46% have no opinion. Lee has represented Oakland and other parts of the Bay Area at the state and congressional level for decades. She is more popular and better known than re- in that region than statewide, with 26% of likely voters stating they, uh, saying they have a favorable view of her, 19% saying they have an favor- unfavorable view, and 55% saying they had no opinion of her. Although she is one of just three black members of Congress from California, even among black voters, 45% said they had no opinion of Lee. The poll was administered online in English and Spanish from May 17 to Monday among 7,465 California registered voters of whom a weighing subsample of 5236 were considered likely to vote in the march primary the poll sample was weighed to match census and voter registration benchmarks because of weighting, uh, the uh, precise estimates of the margin of error are difficult but the results are estimated to have a margin of error of 2.5 percentage points in either direction for the full sample that was Feinstein unfit for office, voters say. In survey by Benjamin Oreskes from the Los Angeles Times Thursday, May twenty fifth, twenty twenty three. All right, now we're gonna go on to something from the L.A. Affairs section from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, May twenty first, twenty twenty three. She mended my broken heart, a tale of love lost and found in the valley by Ron Millman. <clears throat> I was in the midst of a personal meltdown. My divorce after a long marriage was heartbreaking and painful. A job transition was taking longer than I had thought, causing financial concerns, and loneliness and stress were taking their toll on me. I'm not the type of person who, uh, who embraces being alone. Don't get me wrong, I really like me, but I am more comfortable being a part of a we. I found myself looking for love in all the wrong places in L.A. I had been dating endlessly with no game plan. I thought... I thought that was what I was supposed to do. Everyone, knew, everyone I knew told me so. This style of dating was a frustrating landscape that I didn't belong in, and the more I went out in the valley, the more I disliked dating. I had even dated a few women on the west side, but found them to be less my type. Therefore, I stuck to the valley and met most of my dates at the local peasant in Sherman Oaks or the Surly Goat in Encino. As a solution to my dating challenges, I reconnected with someone from my past, thinking she was my destiny and that, with the right amount of time, destiny would prevail. Boy, was I wrong. So I stopped looking. I was out with my daughter late one night when I received a text from an old friend I hadn't spoken to in a while. She also sent me a picture of a longtime friend of hers, explaining that the woman was newly single. My friend wanted to know if I was interested in meeting her friend. I remember the picture well. The woman in the photo was beautiful, with long strawberry blonde hair, an amazing smile, and just a hint of sass. After pressing my friend for details, I took the woman's number. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to wait a few days to call her. I didn't want to seem desperate. I decided to text her before reaching out with a phone call. After a few texts back and forth, she agreed to call, and we had talked on a Sunday evening. I liked her immediately. She was smart, funny, direct, and totally adorable. We made plans to get together for brunch the following week. This was my first ever daytime date. It was a spring like 75 degrees in LA in February, and I decided to go casual and wear my uh, usual uniform of shorts, a t-shirt, and flip-flops. I was determined to be me. I figured this woman wasn't likely going to be a long-term thing anyway. Again, I was wrong. She walked into Hampton's 818 in Sherman Oaks, and she was beautiful, vibrant, and hot. I was worried that some people might think I was her father. She's 12 years my junior. And that she would get carted for the bottomless mimosas we ordered. We settled into the date and started a meaningful conversation. She was damaged, also the victim of a recent divorce, and finding her way. However, she was fo- uh, Filled with life, bursting at the seams with thoughts and ideas about things she wanted to do, see, and experience. I loved her energy and intelligence, her zest for living life to its fullest. I noticed that when I talked, she listened. I mean, actually listened. She heard me and took genuine interest in what I was saying. As we parted ways after the date, we left things with a simple hug and nothing more. I am, of course, a gentleman but we didn't make plans to be in touch again. After our successful second date, I texted her that I wanted to see her again. Her response was, I'm not looking for a relationship. I quickly replied that I wasn't either, so there was no problem. I was lying. I dug her and wanted her to be mine. As weeks and months went on, we spent plenty of time together and began getting closer. Our physical chemistry was immediate and magnetic and dare I say, spectacular. However, I was still lost, stuck in the past and not open to her. I liked her, but I wasn't able to give her the fullness of my heart that she deserved. I saw her as a placeholder, a bridge to someone else, and the love I was looking for. I broke, through, I broke things off with her a couple of times, determined to find that love and move my life forward. After the last of the brief breakups, I decided to open my heart to her and make my priority. I wanted to give her all that she deserved. I wasn't afraid of expressing my feelings, which she wasn't used to at all. My expressives initially freaked her out, but she has adapted and forced herself to be more open and vulnerable. We now have a deeper love for each other. We laugh together, sometimes at each other. She is overflowing with love, and I think it surprises her. She has taught me to take things as they come and live life to its fullest. She has made me a better man. We moved in together a little over a year ago. My Yale is an angel. Yes, I said her name. I want the world to know how much I love this woman and how she saved me. She also puts up with my mood swings and emotional expressions of my love. She calls them cheesy. Now this angel will become my wife on May 28th and I couldn't be happier. I've As I've learned, sometimes when you think you're looking for love in all the wrong places, you just need to open your eyes a bit wider. And maybe right in front of you. That was She Mended My Broken Heart by Ron Millman from the LA Affairs section of the Los Angeles Times Sunday, May 21st, 2023. The author is an executive recruiter and the dad of two amazing daughters. He lives in Sherman Oaks. Find him on Instagram at Millman Search Group. L.A. Affairs chronicles the search for romantic love in all its glorious expressions in the L.A. area. And we want to hear your true story. We pay $300 for a published essay. Email Affairs at LATimes.com. You can find past columns at LATimes.com slash LAaffairs. And now we're going to go on to some entertainment news. And we start off with uh, this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. TV to Never Forget Belle Powley stars as a woman who hid Jews from Nazis in a small light by Meredith Blake New York Belle Powley isn't one of those English actors who is forever starring in period pieces and stuffy literary adaptations. Despite features that practically scream Bronte heroine, pale skin, sorrowful blue eyes, dark hair, the 31-year-old has a reputation for playing opinionated, fast-talking young women, Fig- uh, figuring out their path in the world. Characters brimming with wit and frantic energy will feel instant familiar, instantly familiar to the modern viewer. There was Minnie, the hormonally supercharged 15-year-old who played in The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Clara, a sexually assertive production assistant in The Morning Show, Kelsey, Pete Davidson's spray tanned friend with benefits in The King of Staten Island, and Bertie, a garrulous 20-something Londoner in everything I know about love. I've always really shied away from period stuff. I often find myself feeling really distanced from it, she said between gulps of iced coffee on a recent morning in Manhattan, still adjusting to the time change after arriving from London a day earlier. Her resistance to historical material was challenged when she was approached uh, about playing the lead role in A Small Light. A limited series about Miep, Uh Geis, G-I-E-S, one of the brave civili- civilians who helped eight Jews, including Anne Frank, hide in a secret annex for two years in Nazi-occupied Amsterdam. And who saved Anne's diary after her arrest in August 1944. Pally was worried it would be another dusty historical drama full of Downton Abbey language, as she put it. Then she read the script. I was blown away by how contemporary it felt, powley said. This is a story that has been told again and again. So it was really important to me that it was done in a fresh way. The series, which concluded its run on Nat Geo on Monday and is available to stream on Disney Plus and Hulu, follows Meep beginning in 1933 when Otto Frank Leif Schreiber hires her to work at his pectin company. She's headstrong and impulsive but also open minded and compassionate, qualities that developed during her difficult childhood. Because of food shortages in Austria, her home country, after World War I, she was sent to live with a Dutch foster family. After the Nazis occupied the Netherlands and began deporting Jews, Meep, newly married to Jan Geis Jo Cole, helps the Franks and four others go into hiding in the annex, risking her life to uh, bring them food and supplies. Even though it's uh, revisit, rev- it's revisiting a well-known tragic story, a small light feels urgent, and not just because we live in a time <clears throat> when tech billionaires, elected politicians, and rap stars traffic openly in anti-Semitic tropes. Powell's, Powell's human- humanizing performance as me, who is vivacious and irreverent, not Senate, saintly, also leads extra power, lends extra power to this tale of everyday heroism. Pally said she was particularly drawn to the surprising moments of humor that creators Tony Phelan and Joan Radder wove into the narrative. Tragedy can't really exist without comedy. We all know from living through the pandemic, which was a really stressful time for the entire world, but I'm sure everyone can admit that they laughed about the adversity of the situation. That's human nature. Pally seems to take the same approach in conversation, pivoting nimbly between the heavy themes of a small light to lighter subjects getting starstruck over the cast of friends or her obsession with the latest season of love is blind pure entertainment she calls it for a pali who is jewish a small life was also personal her family's origin story is both funny and poignant her maternal great-grandparents fled their home near the border of russia and lithuania during the pogroms of the early 20th century bound for new york they landed in dublin they accidentally got up during the fueling stop in Ireland and the boat left, she said. They thought they were in New York. Her grandmother grew up speaking Yiddish in an Irish accent and was safe in Dublin throughout World War II. But you grow up with that weight of that part of history running through your family, she said. Pally's parents had an interfaith marriage and she didn't grow up very religious. But at a young age, she embraced her Jewish heritage, sensing that it was de- it was something to be defended. When she was seven, a classmate told her they could no longer be partners on the walk to swim lessons because her mother didn't want her holding hands with a Jewish person. Experiences like that made me more proud to be Jewish, she said. Both of her parents worked in the industry. Her father, Mark Pally, was a TV actor best known for the for starring in the police procedural The Bill. Her mother, Janice Jaffa, worked in casting, commercials mostly. It was nothing like this glamorous A showbiz hollywood family she said besides pally was never very interested in acting as a child she had other ambitions like being prime minister or a professional pianist then her parents signed her up for a saturday drama class with the nearby theater company mostly she said to get her out of the house a casting director came to the class one day looking for kids to start in a show about teen spies called m.i high and she was selected Much to the dismay of her parents, she did MI high for a few years, then scrapped her plans to pursue a college degree in history. I've always been very dependent from a very young age, very independent from a very young age, probably to do do with my parents' divorce, she said. I was about 15 when I finally went to S. My way for dealing with that was being like, okay, I'm going to do my thing by extraditing myself from the family. By the time she turned 19, she was starring on Broadway in Tom Stoppard's Arcadia and enjoying the thrill of living in New York, even if the material was a bit incomprehensible to her. I still do this to this day don't understand that play, she said, with typical self-deprecating candor. The Diary of a Teenage Girl, released in 2015, became her breakout film role. In the the coming-of-age Tales*, she starred as a 15-year-old aspiring cartoonist caught up in an ill-advised affair with her mother's boyfriend, Monroe, played by Alexander Skarsgård. Set in freewheeling 1970s San Francisco, the film operated from a then-radical assumption that teenage girls could be just as horny and reckless as their male counterparts. Pally was widely praised for her performance, which blended youthful bravado with adolescent confusion. It was the first character that I read a script that I that I had to play. There were so many things that related to that I related to about that story, she said, catching herself before revealing too much. Tale for another time. The part required Pauly to film numerous sex scenes with a much older actor and scrutinize her naked body in the mirror. But she felt safe under the guidance of director Marielle Heller, who acted as a de facto intimacy coordinator years before the job became standard on film sets of post-hashtag Me Too. She wasn't as as lucky on some of the jobs that followed. I had bad experiences with male directors who were probably just too embarrassed to communicate what they want, she said. Can you imagine being like, okay, it's a scene where you have sex, so it's like, have sex? It's horrible. Jobs where everything falls into place only happen every few years, if ever, in an actor's career, Pauly said. For me, the two times that has happened was Diary." where I felt fully connected to the character and fulfilled uh, by the job. Every box was ticked. So I've been searching for it since. I've had many incredible experiences, but not one that's like fully formed until I did A Small light. but oh my God, I got it again. Pally never auditioned to play Meep. Director Susanna Fogel had suggested to her her to Phelan and Radder. After a preliminary meeting over Zoom, Pally was formally offered the role. It was Holocaust Remembrance Day. Mepa's all about being this really ordinary person who does this extraordinary thing. So he wanted somebody who could uh, be relatable, said Radder. Belle is extraordinary, but she has this very human down-to-earthness. Their goal with the series was to wipe the cobwebs of history and take away anything that would make an audience feel removed from the material, said Radder. The creators discussed casting the other actors known for historical pieces but worried they would make the material less relatable. Phelan and Radder, who spent seven years researching the series, had stacks of material to share with Pauly. Powley read Geis' book, Anne Frank Remembered, and spent time in Amsterdam riding a bike along canals and narrow streets that looked as much as they did 80 years ago. She also took a private tour of the Anne Frank House. It was an incredibly eerie, weird experience because we went in Otto Frank's office, which is directly below the Annex. "You can hear like all of the tourists walking around overhead very clearly," she said. "It really brings home how quiet they had to be up there." She was particularly struck by a two hundred fifty pound page transcript of an interview with Meep and Jan, or Jan, when they were in their eighties, which gave her a sense of the couple's playful banter. But Pally, an instinctive performer who also doesn't like to watch herself on screen lest she become too self-aware, was also determined not to become too bogged down in the details. That sounds uh, so cringe, but like good acting just is just presence, she said. You should know all these things that make you feel like you're not a fraud. But beyond that, it's about reacting to the other actor in front of you. Circumstances in the outside world also drove home the importance of the story when, uh, they were telling. While Kanye West was going on his anti-Semitic tirades and dining with Holocaust deniers last year, Pauly and the cast were filming scenes of liberation. I'd been living with Hitler's rhetoric through the show for five months, and then it was actually happening. It was really unsettling. The real Mieb guys, who died in 2010 at age of 100, set an example to follow, regardless of the time period, said Pauly. She believed that you do not have to be special to help others. Unless you're like a psychopath and there's something wrong with your brain, we are all hardwired to do the right thing. It's just about if you execute that choice. That was TV to Never Forget by Meredith Blake from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, May 23, 2023. It's called A Small Light on Disney Plus and Hulu anytime rated TV 14, may be unsuitable for children under the age of 14. Okay, here is another one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, May 23, 2023. Haunting Prisms of the Holocaust. The zone of interest and occupied city unflinchingly confront the horrors of Nazism. By Justin Chang, film critic. Cannes, France. Even before it ended its first weekend, the 76th Cannes Film Festival and it claimed its first critical triumph and competition standout with the zone of interest. An implacably chilling, entirely mesmerizing portrait of a family living in the shadow of the inferno, the movie was greeted at its Friday night Gala premiere with rave reviews. Crass Academy Award speculation. As director Jonathan Glazer finally hit the Oscar zone with interest, wondered a variety headline, and the usual meaningless gush about its lengthy standing ovation. The sustained applause was deserved, but also, I suspect, a little incongruous. I'm glad to have seen Glazer's picture at a morning press screening that was noticeably absent any claps or cheers. As we stumbled out of the theater, silence seemed only the sane response. Silence also feels appropriate following the news that author Martin Amis, A-M-I-S, whose formidable au revoir includes this movie's 2014 source novel, died Friday at 73. Glazer's zone of interest, it should be noted, is dramatically different from the Amos's which, with, with which it shares little more than a title and a setting. Paired to the bone, the movie opens with several moments of pitch black screen and lushly surge the lushly destined surge of Mika Levi's score, or Levy, an unsettling overture that prepares us not just to look but also to listen. Levy also composed the music for Glazer's entrancing 2013 science fiction masterpiece, Under the Skin. As we were ushered into the quotidian the rhythms of life at a comfortable two-story house in Poland, where husband and wife live with their young children and a few servants, our ears can help but pick up on a muted but unceasing chorus of background noises. High screams, barking dogs, crackling flames, clanging metal and not infrequent gunfire the meticulous sound designed is matched by a visual style like laser and his cinematographer lucas zal achieved by hiding cameras through the house and grounds yielding a series of excitingly composed fluidly edited static shots that at times suggest high definition surveillance video depending on where you're on which area you're surveying an upstairs bedroom, or the enormous backyard and expertly tended garden, you might catch glimpses of a high concrete wall, a barbed wire fence, or the smoke from an arriving train or belching chimney. The meaning of these images will be grimly clear to a 21st century audience. For this 1940s family, they have become shockingly easy to accommodate and up to a point, ignore. It doesn't take long for us to learn, that the man of the house is SS officer Rudolf Hess, Christian Friedel, and that the Waldorf compound is Auschwitz, where, as commandant, he devises and implements ever more efficient means of mass murder. From time time to time, as we hear details of his work, as he studies blueprints for an advised crematorium design or tries to ward off a transfer to Germany that would append him and his very well-settled family, This is the life we've always dreamed of, said Haas' wife, Hedwig, Sandra uh, Huller, a sentiment so appalling that if you didn't already know better, you'd wonder whether she might be oblivious to the thousands of people, most of them Jews, being gassed and cremated on the other side of the wall. But Hedwig and her husband are oblivious to nothing. They're just very good at uh, compartmentalizing. Damnation awaits them but for now they lead lives of enviable privilege, with family outings, birthday parties, and visits from grandma. There are mortally funny t- uh, touches from the length of Haas' morning commute, a quick horseback ride through the concentration camp gates to the grisly discovery that awaits him when he takes his kids canoeing in an Ashfield dri- uh, river. <clears throat> the hosses are being ex- asphyxiating themselves just a lot more slowly. The dead are in the air they breathe, in the soil in which they grow their vegetables and on the petals of Hedwig's much-prized flowers. Glazer's immaculate perf- uh, formal precision will remind many of Stanley Kubrick, although with skill at indicting his characters, and by extension his audience, also bears the imprint of Austrian master Michael Haneke. The Zone of Interest, which will be released in the U.S. by A24, is a methodically engineered a, cinema, a cinematic booby trap for its characters and its audience, as anything haneke has ever directed. It's very much about the banality of evil, an apt-if-overused term Hannah Arendt coined while writing about the trial of Adolf Eichmann, one of Hans's bosses. But the move doesn't stop there. It's also about the convenience of evil, the tolerability of evil, the myriad invisible chains of complicity and commerce that turn evil into a thriving transnational business. Those chains have, those chains have of course, been well chronicled, if seldom this artfully, by the countless dr- uh, dramas and documents about the Holocaust that have flooded theaters over the years. Certainly, it's a subject that has never been far from con. The festival where "Life Is Beautiful" won the Grand Prix in 1998, and the pianist took home the Palme, the Palme d'Or in 2002. Hanik's own "The White Ribbon," a more oblique commentary on the sins of the Third Reich, won the Palme in 2009, at the same festival where Quentin Tarantino premiered his Nazi, his Nazi napalming revenge epic, Glorious Bastards," in 2015. The Grand Prix was a rudder to Lazio Neme, grimly immer- uh, Neme's grimly immersive Auschwitz drama Son of Saul, a movie whose furious handheld camerawork and up close look inside the barracks and gas chambers are the antithesis of the zone of interest coolly measured outside and not quite looking in style. Complaining about a survey, a survey of Holocaust movies is standard critical practice. Though given the resurgence of anti-Semitism worldwide and particularly in the US, it's hardly surprising that filmmakers have felt compelled to return to the subject again and again, and in recent years with a gratifying new level of formal intelligence and sophistication. What unites Son of Saul and the zone of interest for all of their differences is a level of aesthetic distance and impatience with the familiar classical narrative conventions, and a conscientious refusal to depict atrocities on screen. Glazer isn't the only filmmaker to arrive in Cannes this year with a picture that confronts the horrors of the Nazism in a manner both unflinching and oblique. No, I'm talking about James Mangold's hotly anticipated Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, fun as it is to see Harrison Ford slap around a bunch of SS officers for old time's sake. I'm talking about an Occupied City, the first documentary feature from British director Steve McQueen and one of the essential early highlights of this year's Cannes. McQueen's particular zone of interest is the fate of Amsterdam's Jewish population during World War II, which we learn about through a series of accounts relayed by an unseen narrator, British actor Melanie Hyams. The stories we hear are individually and cumulatively devastating and they're notably arranged not by date but by location. We visit the sites of long-demolished schools, shops, and restaurants that were once bustling enclaves of Dutch-Jewish life, only to be emptied out as Jews were banned and subjected to brutally enforced curfews. We might hear an account of a founding left on this particular doorstep, or perhaps the family that once lived here and was forced to flee or go into hiding. Anne Frank and her family. are mentioned but not dwelt on at length, a touch that feels of a piece with McQueen's expansive egalitarian sensibility. What makes Occupied City a challenge and uh, and a welcome one worthwhile one isn't its leisurely four-and-a-half-hour running time, including intermission, but rather its formal daring. McQueen achieves an intricate dialect of past and present, while well, Hyams' narration remains locked away in the past, every image we see is of Amsterdam in the present day with particular focus on the city under early pandemic lockdown. The sustained juxtaposition of now versus them uh, versus, produ- produces a remarkable level of aesthetic tension. Sometimes the images of, and the narration chime together beautifully and sometimes they achieve a strange unsettling dissonance. It demands active viewership, an ability to sift through invisible layers and imagine the past superimposed on the present. More than once, I thought about the integral influence of Claude Landsman's landmark Shoah, which, while entirely different in structure, similarly refuses to use archival images and or footage to recreate an irretrievable past. McQueen first came to Cannes in 2018, 2008 with his feature debut, Hunger and would have been back here in 2020 with Lovers Rock and Mangrove both from his TV uh, omnibus small acts had that year's con not been canceled because of the pandemic. Occupied City, which is being presented out of competition at this year's festival, is in some ways McQueen's latest chameleonic swerve. He began his career as a visual artist and has since-directed feature films, Shame, 12 Years a Slave, and a television project, Small Acts. In many senses, the new movie feels like a labor of love. It's based on the illustrated book Atlas of an Occupied City, Amsterdam, 1940-45, by writer and filmmaker Bianca Stichter, who was married to McQueen. They make their home in Amsterdam. Stichter re- recently directed the 69-minute documentary Three Minutes, a lengthening a brilliant companion piece to this movie and another highly conceptualized exploration of anti-Semitic persecution. That movie was acclaimed for its economy and elasticity. Occupied City has drawn mixed reactions here and for its alleged overlength and monotony. Don't let the short attention span of others scare you off when A24 releases this one in theaters. This is uh, vital cinema from a filmmaker with one eye and on the not-so-distant past, and the other on our precarious future. That was Haunting Prisons of the Holocaust by Justin Chang, film critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. All right, now we're going to go on to a television review from the uh, calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, May 24th, 2023. When Chemistry Met Formula. Rogan and Burns' rapport can't save Platonic from its rom-com tropes by Lorraine Ali, television critic. Can a man and a woman be friends without their relationship turning sexual? The question is posed in the first few minutes of Platonic, Apple TV 10-half-hour episode comedy about estranged friends from college. Will, Seth Rogen, and Sylvia, Roseburn, who reconnect at a precarious time in their lives. He's going through a divorce. She's questioning her marriage and her role as a mother of three. Both are edging toward a midlife crisis. When Will tells his buddies that Sylvia's back in the picture, the men debate the implausibility of a platonic male-female friendship, and soon the conversation shifts to the 1989 film When Harry Met Sally. The movie, they argue, was more proof that it's impossible to keep things non-sexual, especially if she's hot. And in the tradition of every other buddy romance since Meg Ryan's orgasm screams in that deli, the series minds laughs in the will-they-or-won't-they tension. It's just that this time, it's aging millennials at the center of the story. Calling attention to the 1989 film that this series echoes doesn't stop Platonic from feeling like a throwback, and it's not not in a welcome-nostalgic sort of way. Though it openly plays with the tropes and cliches of 20th century romantic comedies, wives lamenting the boring, boring task of sex with their husband, married folks looking hopelessly out of place at hip bars, dumpy dudes landing impossibly hot women, the series doesn't do enough to revise the formula. The series from co-creators Nick Stoller and Francesca DeBlanco is set in present-day Los Angeles, where Will is a brewmaster at a popular bar downtown that he co-owns with his friend, Andy, Trey Hale, and his ex-wife's stepbrother, Reggie, Andrew Lopez. He is a man-child of sorts, dyed hair and and all. Sylvia is a Culver City stay-at-home mom whose life is a series of school pickups and drop-offs. She gave up a career in law to raise her three kids and placate her super straight-laced hubby, Charlie, Luke McFarlane. But once she reunites with Will, he forces her to look at what a normal, a no, uh, what a normal she's become. A normie, she's become. She reminds him that he isn't acting his age. That and and she has a point. The beach blonde hair and clogs with socks do make him look like a '90s grunge clown. And the two old friends proceed to stoke their collective self-destructive tendencies within their relationship and those outside of it. Platonic is Byrne and Rogan's first television collaboration. They are also executive producers, and the first time they've joined forces since they starred in the film Neighbors. The chemistry between these stars is the only reason to watch the show. They communicate in an almost telepathic fashion, finishing each other's sentences. Platonic will likely resonate with fans of Byrne and Rogan, who would probably be willing to overlook the other pitfalls of the series. There's an improvisational quality to the scenes together as Will and Sylvia, and there's some true hilarity in the way they portray their all-consuming relationship. They make each other laugh and infuriate one another, strengthening their bump while alienating those around them, including their friends and partners. Beyond the draw of its main stars, Platonic is a, mildly, is a middling comedy with plenty of the same gags you've seen before rogan plays a non an annoying brat proving his edge by pushing over e-scooters and wearing wacky hats burns character contends with family movie night where no one wants to watch the same thing and overflowing toilets at home there's so much more that could have been done to upgrade this comedy from a mildly sharp, charming to a sharp but uh, as is it's a trip down memory lane with harry and sally just 40 years later and the jokes have worn then that was when chemistry met formula by Lorraine Ali television critic from the calendar section the Los Angeles Times Wednesday May 24th 2023 it's called platonic on Apple TV plus anytime rated MA may be unsuitable for children under the age of 17. and now we have a movie review from the calendar section the Los Angeles Times Friday May 26 2023 middle age anyway with socks Nicole Holofener picks fun at bruised egos with grace and hilarity in new film by Glenn Whip. Filmmaker Nicole Holofenser uh, uh, has fashioned a wonderful career, mining her character's angst and annoyances. So when her latest rye comedy, You Hurt My Feelings, Julia louis dreyfuss Beth lets out a sigh at an anniversary dinner with her husband, Don Tobias Menzies, and Beams, were So Lucky, we can be fairly certain that Beth's contentment isn't going to last much past the meal. Everything we learn about Beth and Don's marriage in the film's opening half-hour, from their, from the thoughtful way they treat each other to the way that they open their displays of affection and the way they share an ice cream cone, grosses out their adult son, Elliot, Owen Teague, seems to confirm the proclaimed good fortune. Professionally, they're both sort of successful. Beth makes a living as a writer, mostly she also teaches, and Don has been a therapist for many years. But there's also a sense that by saying these words out loud, Beth is, to a small degree, trying to talk herself into believing them. Yes, You Hurt My Feelings explores the incident of its title and the risks and limits of total honesty in a relationship. But it's also a funny and incisive look at middle-aged malaise at a time when potential has been replaced by a uh, plateus and one might take an inordinate amount of pleasure in the comfort that comes from a well-made pair of socks the hurting of feelings happens inside paragon sports a manhattan institution where don and struggling actor mark arian Moyed are lost in thought shopping for socks so many socks beth and her sister sarah michaela watkins who's married to Mark, decides to surprise them and also learn how the men could possibly spend the better part of an hour debating the merits of footwear. Approaching, they hear Don telling Mark that he's dreading reading yet another draft of Beth's new book, a novel that he has assured her more than once is wonderful. Beth is crushed. Her first book, a memoir, sold modestly. None of the students in the writing class she leads have, e- have even heard of it. So her self-esteem was already shaky. And now this betrayal. I'm never going to be able to look him in the face ever again, Beth tells Sarah, spiraling. How can he respect me if he doesn't like my work? She's self-aware enough to know that she needs approval, particularly from the man she loves, and up to this moment has trusted. How, how love, how her, uh. Treats, uh, treats Beth's wound ego seriously, but also with a tight touch, with a light touch, never losing sight of the comic potential that comes from piercing the vanity of the privileged. She has long excelled in movies like Lovely and Amazing, Walking and Talking, and Enough Said, at, cr- at creating smart, self-aware women, and then putting them in situations that make you laugh, make you wince, and hurt your heart. In Louis Dreyfus. Who starred opposite James Gandolfini in Enough Said, Hallowsener has found the ideal collaborator, and an, an actor gloriously adept at wiggling out, but also capable of conveying vulnerability with a persuasive honesty. Louis Dreyfus worked in Dreyfus's work in these two movies has been nothing short of revelatory. For a film that runs a tight 93 minutes. You Hurt My Feelings manages through a parade of deftly constructed scenes to introduce us to a world of characters that, by the story's end, we feel we know intimately. Hal are made great use of David Cross and Amber Tamblin as a bickering couple that Dunn is treating quite unsuccessfully, it should be noted. Watkins and Louis Dreyfus share a superb rapport as sisters and the great Jeannie Berlin, has two perfect scenes playing their headstrong mother, a woman who possesses a peculiarly optimistic vision for the ways that potato salad can be carried. They're all nursing grievances, some petty, some valid. Don really does seem to be off his game as a therapist. The main quartet, Don and Beth, Mark and Sarah, are a little adrift, trying to stay engaged, but sometimes losing the battle to keep apathy at bay. By the film's end, some lessons will have been learned, though a prof proffers uh, them with such a disarming skill that you may not be aware you absorb them. It feels like a magic trick. That was Middle Age and Mui with Socks by Glenn Whip, from the Calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, May 26, 2023. It's called You Hurt My Feelings, rated R for language, 1 hour, 33 minutes, playing in general release. And now, we're going to read some articles from the Jewish Journal for May 26 to June 1st, 2023, and we start off with the Editor's Notes section. This is called Israel, Water, and the Next 100 Years by David Suissa. Did you know that if you put a bucket in your backyard in Israel to capture rainwater, the water belongs not to you, but to the state? This is one of the interesting tidbits i picked up at la jewish film festival screening of where of who are um, who are the marcuses a documentary about a mysterious jewish couple from san diego who donated half a billion dollars to israel the largest single gift in the history of the united states the film intermingles two stories the donors and the cause the donors are lottie and howard marcus and the cause is water the first story is about two holocaust refugees who invest in their newest their nest egg with Warren Buffett and eventually bequeath half a billion dollars to Ben Gurion University of the Negev to study water management that story and the philosophy of giving that it represents is compelling in its own right but the real power of the film is its deep dive into Israel's existential relationship with water and how Israel can impact the future of humanity through its mastery of life's indispensable element. As you watch the film, it's hard not to juxtapose Israel's water miracles with the loud calls to boycott and condemn the world's only Jewish state. The absurdity of shunning rather than embracing a nation that can save the planet is never more in evidence. The film delves into Israel's long history as a leader in alleviating water scarcity, from Theodore Herzl's early writings about water for the people to David Ben-Gurion's enormous investment in water transportation to the research and innovations in des- desalination, water generation, and purification that have transformed the country. It's impossible to overstate the depth of the relationship between Israel and water. Early pioneers who confronted the desert landscape understood that water would be a decisive factor in the success of the Zionist project. Having strong army, a strong army to defend the state was indispensable, but without plentiful water, there would be no state to defend. Water then entered the bloodstream of Zionism. It consumed everyone from farmers to politicians to scientists to philosophers. When philosopher Micah Goodman speaks in the film about the two Zionisms, He refers to both the safe harbor for the Jews and the opportunity to contribute to the world. Water now exemplifies the second Zionism, sharing with the planet Israel's extraordinary know-how with this universal life-giving force. As much as oil was the liquid of the past century, water has emerged as the dominant liquid of the new century. Water reaches every aspect of societies. The film shows, for example, how droughts in Syria triggered the mass migration of cotton farmers that led to millions of refugees. That humanitarian disaster could have been prevented with the benefit of Israel's water management, especially its cutting-edge purification of sewer water for agriculture. Purified sewer water now supplies about 80% of Israel's agricultural needs, by far the most in the world. The next country is around 15%. The heart of Israel's water miracle is desalination, and for good reason. Indeed, there's something about mystical, something about, almost mystical about living on dry land, looking at the gorgeous Mediterranean Sea, and dreaming that one day you might drink from it. The film traces how, through the miracle of desalination technology, refined over decades, Israel has made that dream a reality, turning seawater into drinking water for eternity. The bond between Israel and water is so deep that it can transcend the usual conflicts. In the film, a water expert waxes philosophically about sharing water with neighbors, even hostile ones. Having thirsty neighbors is morally incorrect, he said. Because water and climate change are inextricably linked, it goes without saying that Israel's mastery with water will have a huge impact on the environmental issue of our time. According to the latest UN World Water Development Report, between 2 and 3 billion people worldwide experience water shortages. The report notes that these shortages will worsen in the coming decades, especially in cities, if international cooperation in this area is not boosted. The world now has its ideal headquarters for this international cooperation, Israel. It's also fitting that this is the week we celebrate the Festival of Shavuot, when we commemorate receiving the Torah at Sinai. As Rabbi Ismar Shork once wrote, Torah to Jews is as vital as water to humans. They are both indispensable sources of life. May we continue to honor both. That was Israel, Water, and the Next 100 Years by David Suisa from the Editor's Notes section. All right Now we go on to the Columnist section. This is called Feinstein's Continued Absence by Dan Schnur. From this distance, it doesn't appear that Diane Feinstein has had many good weeks this year, either in terms of her health or her political standing. But her return to Washington last week, which could have been a triumphant moment under better circumstances, had just the opposite effect for both Feinstein and her supporters, who continue to stand behind her in her efforts to remain in office. Feinstein's extended absence from Washington this year as she recovers from a series of health problems in, that, New y- in the, that the New York Times detailed in previously undisclosed specificity last week has been the focus of intense debate and speculation in Washington and California political circles. But for most state residents who don't monitor U.S. Senate proceedings on a daily basis, Feinstein's situation has been a fairly abstract matter. The practical consequences of her inability to vote has caused all sorts of problems for the Biden administration as several of the president's nominees have languished without her support, and the need for her presence in a closely divided Senate has damaged the prospects of other Democratic legislative priorities, but most Californians barely notice. That lack of awareness from Feinstein's constituents may have changed dramatically last week when photos and video of an 89-year-old woman struggling to navigate the halls of Congress made it clear how diminished California's senior senator has become. The visuals were stunning and depressing. This once-powerful icon read simple statements from notes given to her by aides. She seemed confused when answering questions from reporters, but most alarming was the dramatic diminished, uh, diminishment of her physical condition and appearance. Half of her face was frozen and one eye was nearly shut, providing an uncomfortable visual message about the extent of her health challenges. Feinstein's condition was now much more tangible and visceral, and the pressure on her to step down will now grow even greater. With a few exceptions, most of those Democrats urging her to resign represent the party's progressive wing and have long been unhappy by her centrist voting record. The question is now whether those public statements will start coming from more moderate and establishment voices, which will indicate that the concerns within our party are spreading beyond our ideological opponents to a broader swath of party leadership. It was notable that Representative Dean Phillips, Democrat of Minnesota, who refers to himself on his website as a radical pragmatist and problem solver, this rake renewed and disescalated his cause for his fellow Democrat to step down with an op-ed piece in the online publication, The Daily Beast, in which he said, it was never a question of her qualifications or character, rather of her competency to serve. But Phillips then added a much harsher assessment, suggesting that Feinstein's decision to retain her seat despite her infirmities contributed to voters' lack of confidence in the political process. If elected leaders continue doing what's politically expedient over what is right, this crisis of confidence and trust will only get worse. In an age of COVID and Iraq and Afghanistan, in which politics seems hopelessly gridlocked and corrupt, it's debatable how much Feinstein's uh, intransigence has impacted overall levels of voter cynicism. But this criticism is not coming from the far left, but from another democratic centrist. So it will be intrusive as to whether other nervous members of the party establishment begin to go public with their concerns. Even Feinstein's strongest defenders must admit that she is no longer fulfilling most of the functions of her office. While all of us hope that she recovers to a point where she can author and negotiate legislation, meet with constituents, and once again become a forceful voice on the issues that are most important for her, the likelihood of that restoration seems to be diminishing with great speed it's entirely possible that her determination to remain in office will no longer be sufficient. I've written previously about how California Governor Gavin Newsom would very much want to avoid selecting Feinstein's successor. The evidence of last week suggested that he might not have a choice. That's Feinstein's continued absence by Dan Schnur from the columnist section. Dan Schnur is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. Join Danforth's weekly webinar, Politics in the Time of Coronavirus, www.lawac.org on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Here's something else from the columnist section, Excitement Fades, Meaning Doesn't, by Kylie Aura Lobel. It was the spring of 2010. I was a junior in college and I just found out that I was going to be interning as the Daily Show with Jon Stewart, my fall semester. It was my dream come true. I jumped up and down and shouted yes over and over. I told my all my family and friends who were so proud of me. I'd worked hard and it, it paid off. I did it. I felt invincible. I couldn't wait for the internship to start. I figured this was probably how my meteoric rise in television would begin. I'd become a famous TV writer or something of the sort. The first day at the Daily Show, I went in with a big smile on my face and a willingness to do whatever it took to get ahead. Quickly, I learned that meant schlepping heavy groceries from the nearby gourmet market back to the studio, cutting bagels for the writers, and logging and transcribing tapes all day. My smile quickly faded as the reality set in. I was doing menial tasks for no pay and learned very little about how television actually worked. I became anxious about having to go to work and depressed that, in, that the internship hadn't turned out like I expected. I felt isolated because I was a public university student surrounded by Ivy Leaguers. I didn't know how to play the game you had to take part in if you were in show business. I floundered. And I had no God to turn to, no faith to rely on. When the excitement faded, I had nothing to hold on to, no grounding at all. Back then, I was an avowed atheist. I thought that everything was in my control. If something went wrong, it was my fault. If my life wasn't good, it was because I put myself in that position. I never thought maybe this internship isn't working out because I'm not meant to work in television or it's okay that things are bad right now because there could still be a light at the end of the tunnel. It was an absolutely miserable semester. There were a few exciting moments like when John Stewart said hello to me in the kitchen and when I got to see audience members who were thrilled to be there. But overall, I dreaded being there and I couldn't wait for it to end. When it was over, I celebrated, ironically enough, just like I did when I got the internship. And just a few weeks later, I went on a comedy show on a dark winter night in Brooklyn, and I saw a cute man talking about how he had interned at the Colbert Report and hated it. No way, I said. I interned at the Daily Show and hated it too. I could never admit this to anyone because everyone else seemed to love it, he said, it's such a relief to be able to say it out loud, right? Yes, he said, smiling at me. The man's name was Daniel, and I liked him immediately. Now, thirteen years later, he is my husband. Today, I believe in God. I'm an observant Jew. I can see how—I can see that God was at the internship every step of the way, crafting my story and helping me create a beautiful life for myself. If I hadn't gotten that internship. And hated it, I never would have met Daniel. I probably wouldn't have converted to Judaism. We wouldn't have two amazing little girls. I wouldn't have this joyous, wonderful life. This Shavuot, I'm thankful I have found God, as well as the Torah, my guidebook. It teaches me that God is in control and to trust in him that everything is for the best. Since The Daily Show, I've had many exciting career moments in my life, but all of them faded surface level excitement is not always what it seems when it goes aw- what when it goes away what am i left with these days it's real meaning my values my belief in god and my love for my family and friends that's what i turn to at the end of the day that's what truly matters in life that's what makes life worth living how has the torah changed your life email me at kylie uh kylieol at jewishjournal.com that was Excitement Fades Meaning Doesn't from the columnist section by Kylie Ora Lobel Kylie Ora Lobel is the community editor of the Jewish Journal and also from the columnist section this is called On the Ropes in Yoga Class by Judy Groon I recently returned to practicing it Langar Yoga and immediately realized how much I had missed it both both Iyengar studios and I, I had frequented for years closed due to skyrocketing rents, so I performed my downward dogs and triangle poses uh, from, my, from the mat in my small home office with Zoom instructors and videos. These are great Hatha-style workouts, but Iyengar classes are much longer, usually an hour and a half, and involve frequent restaging of your mat with bolsters, blankets, bricks, straps, and even ropes. It's a ganza Megila, and I didn't have the space, the equipment, or the patience to try to do it from home. During my first class as a prodigal Iyengar returnee, my new instructor Chris announced that we were going to into a half-handstand. I wondered, could I still do it so long without practice? Without overthinking it, within a few seconds, I had braced my hands on the floor and planted my feet against the wall about three feet from the ground. Uh, Chris suggested improvement uh, to my form, and I adjusted accordingly. I was surprised and rather amazed that I could get my body in which a 90-degree angle like that. All my yoga practices, even from home, had kept me strong. Yoga is associated with Buddhism, but plenty of religious Jews are devoted practitioners. At the beginning of an Iyengar class, there is an incarnation to an ancient sage which is considered the father of yoga. This mantra is sort of like their, Barahu before sacrit and I sit quietly until the brief Sanskrit prayer is over. For many, yoga is a much, it's as much a spiritual practice as a physical one. This got me thinking, can you really separate the physical from the spiritual? As long as we are living in this temporal existence, I don't think so. There are many things I love about yoga, all kinds of yoga. After each class, I can take my powered-up stamina and the spiritual benefits and plug them into my Jewish life. For example, yoga emphasizes intention, integrity of form, purposeful breathing, and accepting the limits of what we can do in each, pre- in each practice. By the way, the word for breath in Hebrew, nishama, is nearly identical to the word for soul, nishama. It's about opening up channels of energy and growing in strength and flexibility. It's never about competition with anyone else, and certainly never about how glamorous your work your workout clothes are. I also like the folks I met in yo- a meeting yoga class. They're like the people you meet on a mountain trail, friendly, unhurried, focused on being in the moment. The hurly-burly of our workday life can wait. I find some things in yoga almost hilarious, such as having to look at the dozen framed pictures of BKS Iyengar, the originator of this style of yoga, all over the room. He looks to be about 85 in these photos, and in each one he is contorting himself in some impossibly wild tangle of arms and legs. An Indian Gumby. His expression is calm. Just another day with your feet wrapped around your ears. All my instructors claim that each yoga position is good for something. The adrenals, the heart, the kidneys, the brain, etc. I believe them. Mr. Angar lived to be 95, and I imagine that one day after standing on his head for an hour or two, he simply laid down on his mat in a final, permanently restorative uh, shivasana pose. I've heard Mr. Angar cur- cured his own minor illnesses by standing on his head for at least 40 minutes each day. Just a word to the wise. I also find it funny that I am taking the same class and as paragons of yoga strength and endurance and who can hold a perfect full head or hang from their knees from a pair of ropes for ten times minutes a day at a time. Do I ever belong here? Do I even belong here? Yes, I do. I remind myself that this isn't a competition; it's about working for my personal best with intention, focus, breath, and a sense of humor to strengthen body and spirit. That was On the Ropes in Yoga Class by Judy Gruen from the columnist section. Judy Gruen's most recent book is The Skeptic and the Rabbi Falling in Love with Faith. And uh, here's something else from the columnist section. What Choice Do I Have by Mark Schiff. Recently I said to my doctor, I feel like I'm getting so old. I feel tired a lot and my elbows look like shriveled lemons. In my 20s and 30s, I was pain-free 95% of the time. The 5% pain was from over-exercising or falling off bar stools after 2 a.m. I had an occasional ache or pain in my 40s and 50s, but I was generally gone the next day. But the 60 and up crowd was quick to share with me what hurt them, and keeps hurting them. i hear getting old is not for sissies. Thank God I'm retired, or I would have time to visit, uh, I wouldn't have time to visit all my doctors. And who is the most popular person in a retirement home? Person that can still drive at night. The stories were sometimes sad and occasionally funny. One woman told me she busted a rib sitting on the toilet. Another said he had a stroke biting into a Fuji apple. A few weeks before his death, my grandfather said, "I'm stiff everywhere except the one part. I wish I, I wish I, I wish still was." I heard the, their complaints, but because I was still years away, most of what they said did not compute. I thought, in their situation, I'd be a fighter. Yet they all seemed resigned to live with whatever they had. I'd hear, what choice do I have? When entering my sixth decade, like an old Ford, I was told I had a leaky hose and one of my valves started wearing out. Doctors questioned me about how many times i get up at night. The painful snap of their rubber glove made that became commonplace. My doctor got mad when I joked, can we do the glove thing in the at the park where there's a nice breeze. Little by little, I began racking up aches, pains, and ailments. I'm quickly closing in on my very own medicine cabinet. And now it takes at least 30 minutes to fill my oversized pill cases. Each pill has a possible side effect that are potentially worse than the actual disease. Amazingly, not one of my medications cures a thing except for the CEO of Pfizer's need to one day retire in a 30,000-square-foot home overlooking the ocean in Maui. And that is as the dolphins wave hello to him on their way to get sushi. I'm I'm now being treated for an amalgam of different things. High blood pressure, high cholesterol, cataracts, possibly glaucoma, lower back pain, tendinitis, and atrial fibrillation. The good news is that I have two, I have to dental problems I have no dental problems because I have no original god-given pearly whites to try counterbalancing I'm a vegan don't smoke drink or use recreational drugs my plantar fasciitis keeps me from chasing any woman but my wife and she's relatively easy to catch since tearing her meniscus I exercise 7 times a day My treadmill is not an expensive coat hanger, I use it. I also ride my Peloton and lift light weights because of bulging discs and popping uh, L4 and L5 vertebrae. I walk everywhere I can, I meditate and pray, and I fight like heck to keep off the 50 pounds I lost over a decade ago. With all of this, I'm in better shape than many of of my friends, and because some of these uh, ailments are more serious than others I listen to my doctors and never miss taking my pills here it is what choice do I have there I said it like an old cat you can't fix it until you can't fix it any more. I refuse to throw in the warm towel which I need to help me uh, with my dry eyes I will not give up I will do whatever I have to do I owe I owe it to my friends family and my creator I owe it to everyone that shares in this great life of mine, and it's not one-sided. If I'm able, hopefully, I will be there for them, like they've been there for me. If you want to go to hell, then you need to dwell on what's wrong. But helping others takes your mind off you and your swollen feet. Gotta go. It's nappy nap time. After all, what choice do I have? That was What Choice Do I Have by Mark Schiff from the Colonist section. Mark Schiff is a comedian, actor, and writer, and a host of You Don't Know Schiff Podcast. His new book is Why Not? Lessons on Comedy, Courage, and Chutzpah. All right, now we've got something from the My Turn" section. This is called My Son's Russian Grandmother by Marjorie Ordine. When Marina, a Russian Jewish immigrant, first came to babysit for my two-year-old son, Ari, she was in her mid-50s. In many ways, she was perfect for the job. A graduate of the Institute of Foreign Languages at Anamati, Kazakhstan, she was fluent in English. Unlike previous hires, she didn't limit herself to babysitting, but happily took on other household chores. Most important, she adored my son Ari, doting on him like a grandmother and bragging to the other sitters uh, in the park that her charge was the cutest. My friend Roxanne tried to convince me that I should find a younger woman to care for my child, not an old woman like Marina. But fortunately, I didn't listen to her. I held on to my old woman, and today at 86, she still comes in three mornings a week. She treats Arya as her own grandson, giving him money on his birthday and on Purim. My son graciously accepts the gifts of his only living grandparent. Coming from the former Soviet Union, Marina knew next to nothing about Jewish observance but week after week she helped prepare for Shabbat, cooking up a storm of dishes. Since my grandparents and great-grandparents also hailed from Russia, she was already familiar with the recipes. I never realized what close attention she was paying until one day she asked about my Shabbat candles. My friend tells me you put, put out one candle for each child and one for you and your husband. Is that right? She asked. Honestly, I didn't know if this was half if this was halacha or minhag, but we did put out three, two for us and one for our son. She was thinking of lighting her own candles and wanted to get it right. On Purim every year, I send Marina home with Shalach Monos to share with her daughter and grandson. She told me that she remembered her grandmother in Russia giving gifts to her friends on this day. I was known to me as Marina Popova, I recently learned that her birth name was Miriam Weitzman. Upon starting school in Kazakhstan, to which her family had been forcibly relocated from war-torn, war-torn Leningrad, her schoolteacher proclaimed, From now on, you will be called Marina. And so it was. Miriam became Marina. When she married, she became Marina Popova, a change she was reluctant to make, but her mother told her it was perhaps prudent to hide her Jewish identity. I only recently discovered the story of Marina's mother. After her husband went off to to fight in the war, she was left alone with Marina, then an infant. One day, her husband came home unexpectedly accompanied by another woman, unabashedly pregnant with his child. How can I leave her? he asked. Marina's mother was so traumatized that she never married again, and Marina grew up without a father. Marina's grandson, Jeffrey, now 26, carries his father's Jewish surname and dates only Jewish women. They came to our son's bar mitzvah and, God willing, will one day uh, attend his his wedding. On our kitchen counter, I displayed three family photos. The first shows my mother and my aunt, seated side by side in my aunt's art-filled apartment. The second, our son, uh, leaning against a giant oak tree in Prospect Park, and the third, Marina, holding up a two-year-old Ari to show off his Purim costume. He is clad as the Pillsbury Doughboy in a white stretchy and classic baker's hat that Marina and her daughter lovingly and expertly sewed. "'I am so happy you uh, you keep my picture on your counter,' Marina remarked. "'Truthfully, I hadn't put it there because of her, but because of Ari, not even noticing who was holding him. "'Nevertheless, there she is,' embracing her adopted grandson like any proud Jewish grandmother, and there the picture remains to this day, although he is now a 27-year-old adult. Like many Jews from former Soviet Union, Amarina came here looking for a better life, seeking to live the American dream. When she arrived with her non-Jewish husband and intermarried daughter, she was not searching for her Jewish roots. For that, she could have stayed in Israel, her first destination upon leaving Russia but that option was not under consideration as her goal was to reach America. And yet, intentionally or not, as she wishes me good Shabbat, I realize she did end up becoming more Jewish after all. That was My Son's Russian Grandmother by Marjorie Ordine from the My Turn section. Marjorie Ordine, MD, is an integrative physician and nutritionist. Her essays, short stories and poetry, have been published in various magazines and anthologies, including Tablet, AISH.com, The Sun, Lilith, Ami Magazine, and Mishpaha Magazine. And now we go on to the Nation World Briefs section, and this first one is called, Christiane Amanpour apologizes to Rabbi D. On Air for describing, describing terror attack as a shootout after Rabbi threatens lawsuit, by Aaron Bandler. CNN international anchor Christiane Amanpour announced her apology today to Rabbi Leo D for referring to the terror attack that killed Dee's wife and two daughters as a shootout on April 10. Dee had announced on May 21st that he was considering a $1.3 billion lawsuit against CNN over her description of the attacks as a shootout. The Journal previously reported, that during a May 21st event at the Cattleback School in New York titled Anti-Semitism, Is There No Solution? Dee said through a video call that he was considering a lawsuit after Amanpour wrote a private apology to him via email. Showing the email exchanged to attendees, Dee alleged that he wrote her back uh, uh, demanding that she apologize publicly, but she, ne- but she never replied to him. Dee also said during the event that he would reconsider the lawsuit should Amanpour publicly apologize and if CNN provided more balanced coverage of Israel. In her on air apology, Amanpour said On April 10, I referred to the murders of an Israeli family, Lucy, Maya, and Rena D., the wife and daughters of Rabbi Leo D., I misspoke and said they were killed in a shootout instead of a shooting. I have written to Rabbi Leo, apo- Leo D., to apologize and make sure that he knows that we apologize for any further pain this may have caused him. The Jerusalem Post reported that D told Channel 12 News Israel on May 23rd that he didn't accept the apology, saying that if it was too little too late and that he doesn't think CNN would have, be- would, have- would behave differently in the future. Former Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz told uh, T24 News on May 23rd that he will take on the D family case pro bono and that they are exploring all the options. That was Christiane Amanpour apologizes to Rabbi D. On Air for describing terror attack as a shootout after Rabbi Threaten's lawsuit by Aaron Bandler. This next one is called Biden Administration Slams Itamar ben Gvir's Provocative Visit to Temple Mount by Ron Campius, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The Biden Administration said a visit to Jerusalem's Temple Mount by Itamar ben Gvir. Israel's far-right national security minister, was provocative and cautioned against changes at the contested holy site. Ben-Givar visited the Temple Mount, which Muslims refer as the Noble Sanctuary, on Sunday morning and declared that Israel was in charge of the sensitive site. A group of right-wing activists has long pun- uh, pushed for Jews to be able to pray freely on the Mount, considered the holy site in Judaism. Disputes over the site have previously led to bloodshed and precipitated broader conflict in the region. Following Ben-Giver's visit, Matthew Miller, the State Department spokesperson, said in a statement that the Biden administration was concerned by today's provocative visit to the Temple Mount, uh, Haram al-Sharif in Jerusalem, and the accompanying inflammatory rhetoric. This holy space should not be used for political purposes and we call on all parties to respect its sanctity, Miller said. More broadly, we reaffirm the long-standing U.S. position in support of the historic status quo at Jerusalem's holy sites and underline Jordan's special role as custodian of Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem. That was Biden administration slams Itamar Ben-Giver's provocative visit to Temple Mount by Ron Campius JTA. This last one is called Israel's President Optimistic on Reform Compromise from the Jewish News Syndicate. Israeli President Isaac Herzog on Monday expressed confidence that a meeting of the minds on Israeli judicial reform can be reached in the coming months. This process takes time. No one drags their feet and no one wastes time. Unlike all kinds of spin, these discussions are very serious and very in-depth. People give of themselves and come to the room with goodwill, Herzog said at the opening of the 2023 Herzlia conference at Reichman University. The president has been brokering talks between the government coalition and the opposition at his official residence in Jerusalem on the legal initiative that has divided the country. Tens of thousands of Israelis have taken to the streets to demonstrate both for and against the program. Herzog will participate in talks with individual representatives throughout the week with larger meetings set to resume next week. I'm not naive. I'm optimistic because the alternative is much more serious, much more dangerous. If we reach understandings, we can understand how much it will strengthen the country, how much it will enable it to reach another 75 years uh, of state, statehood in a stable manner that will enable proper social development, Herzog said. That was Israel's president optimistic on Reform Compromise from the Jewish News Syndicate. And those are all from the Nation World Briefs section. All right, now let's turn to uh, this little poem. This is uh, called The Festival of Weeks, A Poem for Shavuot by Rick Lupert. Like honey and milk, it lies under your tongue. Song of Songs, 4:11. When we're, When we're born, we count our age in days. That quickly changes to weeks and then months which lasts for a while even after a year but then it is only years we measure our time by imagine if three decades in someone proclaimed to be 360 months old at a certain point we can only perceive the passage of time in the largest possible increments the minute by minute details lost to our past then once a year after we put the matza away we slow it back down to weeks to savor the passing moments to establish a yearning for what will be given. All of us standing at the mountain as if our flesh was on that soil, as if we spent 40 days looking up, as if we were prepared for the sweetness about to land on our tongues. It is at this point our memory kicks in of miracles we saw through other people's eyes. The book, This book of our past which we read to uh, guide our future, which we struggle with to understand the why and how of history. This Jewish textbook for our lifelong masterclass. We are, we are the people of the book and this is the book we received it thousands and thousands of weeks ago before we understood how to separate milk from meat before Ruth went where she went before we even knew what a blintz was. We'll do this again in a prompt and an appropriate number of weeks. I wouldn't plan on getting any sleep tonight. There's too much to know. That was the Festival of Weeks, a poem for Shavuot by Rick Lupert. Rick Lupert, a poet, song leader, and graphic designer, is the author of 27 books, including God Wrestler, a poem for every Torah portion. Okay, now let's, for the time that we have left, read some ads from the Jewish Journal for May 26 to June 1st, 2023, starting with this one. Los Angeles Jewish Health is energizing senior life. The evolution of our name from the Los Angeles Jewish home to Los Angeles Jewish Health reflects the full spectrum of our comprehensive award-winning programs and services. Los Angeles Jewish Health has grown from a group of caring neighbors, providing shelter to a leading nonprofit senior care organization. Our mission remains the same to deliver excellence in senior care for all rooted in Jewish values. With more than 100 years of trusted care, we meet you where you are in life to provide a customized experience that's right for you. Independent living, assisted living, senior behavioral health, short-term rehabilitation, skilled nursing, PACE, hospice and palliative care, nursing school, geriatric health, and memory care. LAJ Health, Los Angeles Jewish Health. One call, does it all. 855-227-3745 website, www.lajhealth.org. All right, here's this one. Independent Living, Assisted Living, Memory Care. Now leasing luxury senior residences. An award-winning community for seniors on LA's west side, the watermark at Westwood Village features luxury residences for independent living, assisted living, and memory care with upscale restaurants and resort inspired amenities it's just steps from the culture of the ucla campus this sophisticated community offers a wealth of opportunities for growth and connection from the integrative wellness and engaging activities to educational programs and exciting excursions a different kind of senior living awaits at the watermark at westwood village where it's easy to embrace the possibilities schedule a private tour today call 310 310- 893-5423 and visit our website at watermarkwestwood.com The Watermark at Westwood Village Elon uh, Collection watermarkwestwood.com address is 947 Tiverton Avenue in LA 90024 23-WWV-1402A and RCFE number one nine eight three. Let's throw in another one here. Why we don't stop playing because we grow old, we grow old because we stop playing. George Bernard Shaw. Call today to schedule a visit. 213-546-9723, Palm Court Independent Living, 3995 Overland Road, Culver City, 90232. Website, palmcourtla.com. Dot com. Palm Cart operates by state and local health guidelines. And let's see if we can find one more for a good measure. Like this one. Three views are better than one. Every morning we serve up the hot issue of the day with three fresh takes to open minds. Jewish Journal Roundtable. Hot issues, fresh takes. Sign up now to get the email newsletter at roundtable.jewishjournal.com. And ladies and gentlemen, it looks like we are going to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything with us Jewish folk right here, the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.